Welcome to Future Foodcast. I'm Pam Line Miller, your host, and we are thankful for our sponsor, Farm to Plate. They are creating tomorrow's food business ecosystem today. You can find out more at farmtoplate.io. And our guest today is going to talk to us all about something that we all love, which is fresh fresh baked bread. I have John Gates here. He is the co-founder and CEO of Neshoba Brook Bakery. Welcome to the podcast, John. Hi, thank you. Yeah. You know, we can smell it, smell it. You can feel it, that warm bread that you just take a nice piece of, and it's just mouthwatering. I just love it. So we're going to, we're going to talk all about that today, but you, you have a co-founder. I do. I do. Uh, So Stu Witt and I are friends since high school and we started this company together. Actually, believe it or not, yesterday was our 25th anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Wow. 25 years. 25 years. Actually, September 11th is the day that we opened the business in 1998. And so that's sort of a complicated anniversary. So today on September 12th, everybody who comes into our cafe, which wraps around and looks in on 15,000 square feet of bread kitchens, everybody who brings a loaf of bread to the counter to buy it is being greeted by the people who work for us saying, happy birthday. This bread is on the house today. Oh my goodness. How great is that? We're we're not publicizing that except now with you, but I don't think we're going live. So, but, but we are (laughs) going to be giving away bread all day in the bakery and um, just sort of a way to celebrate the anniversary. Wow. Now that is really special. And that's part of why you have such great recurring customers. I mean, you have people that have supported you for years and years and years, and I'm sure this is part of the reason why. That is true. That is true. We yeah. we have a loyal following locally, especially. We've begun to grow our distribution beyond the greater Boston area, but we have a very loyal local following for sure. Yeah. Now you talk about your your cafe. So you have where you break, uh, bake the bread. I was going to say break the bread. You have where you bake the bread and where you break the bread in a cafe that's kind of connected. Share that with us a little bit where the sure. customers would be coming in. Sure. So the, the cafe, I like to think of it is to bread what a brew pub is to beer. Okay. So you come in the cafe and you have windows that look out on one side over the Neshoba Brook and a cobblestone retaining wall and a wooden footbridge that takes you to a parking lot in the back. Quite beautiful, yeah. um, especially this time of year as the leaves start to change up here in New England. It's, it's just a gorgeous spot. And then in the other direction, it looks in on these big bread kitchens and these giant bread ovens and you know, our team of people, we're making 8,000 loaves of bread a day at this point, um, which is, a it's an unusual amount of sourdough based bread. And that's part of the story we're going to talk about today is real sourdough and why that makes what we do different than other bread bakeries. 8,000 loaves a day? Yes. And, okay. we're, and we're just completing a big renovation that will effectively double our production capacity. So we're not going to be making 16,000 loaves of bread a day tomorrow. But at some point in the next year, we hope to continue to grow past 10,000 loaves a day, possibly up to 12,000 loaves a day in 2024. Amazing. Now, let's go ahead and dive into that capacity because you are in the middle of a big expansion. As a matter of fact, your co-founder, Stu, was thinking about being with us, but he's otherwise engaged right now. Yeah, we were bringing in. So we've we've done 90% of the renovation 
Uh, it's been a hard process. We we thought we were going to complete this in 20 weeks, and it's been almost two and a half years at this point. Oh my goodness! We've never stopped baking bread. So part of what's made it so long, and you know, there's another reason why it's gotten more expensive, which is just the story of renovating. Right? It's always double the time and double the money. Well, this is triple the time and double the money. But we were bringing in a part of the third new Italian bread oven yesterday, uh, 450 pound part of the infrastructure of that oven and it fell off the dolly and bent. So we have an Italian engineer here that was working with us anyway to build this oven, and they're downstairs in uh, in emergency mode trying to make sure that we haven't just delayed the project again by another month while we wait for a replacement piece. Oh my gosh. Well, I hope that's not the case and that they're, that they're able to make this part of the oven functional. But these ovens are, can you help us conceptualize now? Some are watching us on YouTube. A majority of our listeners are just listening to us on sure. one of the podcast channels. So if you can kind of verbally create the visual of what one of these ovens is. Sure. So um, in the places around the world where bread is made as a big part of the culture, so I would say England, Germany, France, Spain, Italy, the United States, mostly Europe and America, although bread is part of the culture everywhere, these big specialty ovens in particular are pretty much things that are used in, in Western Europe and America. And the ones that we've had in the past were French. The ones that we just bought are Italian, but they're essentially a very similar design. And the design is you have a very heavy concrete base that has a channel that runs through it. It sort of does a zigzag through this heavy concrete base. And we shoot a flame through that base and it superheats the brick. And then the brick radiates the heat up through the baking area above it. And that baking area is wrapped by steel tubes that have water permanently inside them and the water moves once it gets hot. So it's circulating water around the baking area, which keeps the baking area moist. And it also helps regulate the temperature. And then they're steam injected. And the decks that they're that the bread is baking on are made out of a kind of heavy brick concrete-like material. So they're literally stone hearths. So the bread is stone hearth baked. And the steam is super important as any of the bread bakers who are listening. No, because that's what gives bread its crust. So after the bread is initially put in the oven, after it's loaded into the oven, it's shot full of steam and that steam makes the outside of the bread crust. Each, uh, each of those ovens, by the way, weighs about 38,000 pounds. 38,000 pounds. Okay. That's a huge, is that a semi-truck? That's bigger than, that's more than a semi-truck. So, yeah. It? So the, the, the components of the oven were packed into crates in Italy and then put on the back of, put in containers, and then put on the back of a ship, and then brought to the port of New York, and then trucked up here from New York, and then unloaded by our team, actually, which is how we ended up with this piece falling off of dollies yesterday, because honestly, we didn't have enough people to hold this 450 ah. pound piece in place. Okay. Um, and then unloaded into our facility. And then this Italian engineer comes in and helps us build them in place. That's just, that's just amazing to think about what goes in there, but, and just the whole process that happens. Um, so that is the, the care. And I'm sure a lot of the success of once people eat your bread, they, they come back again and again, they're not buying sourdough bread anywhere else, but there's some historic significance. You talked about cultures where, or other countries where bread is kind of a staple of what they do there. Uh, they 
literally breaking bread around the table. Um, here in the North America, I think, you know, some some of us have gotten away from that and, and gluten has kind of taken a bad rap, but there's still a lot that happens there. I, I really want to differentiate the sourdough bread from some of the other mass produced bread that's available because sure. there is a difference. Yeah, there, Pam, that's a, that's a big one. And there's a lot for me to say about that. But the first okay. thing I want to tell you and everybody else is that when you see sourdough on the label of a bag of bread, turn it over and look at the ingredients list. And if it says yeast or baker's yeast, then it's not real sourdough because okay. real sourdough is made with wild yeast that's captured wild yeast. If there's yeast in the air in the office where you are now in the office where I am. It's in the air in the homes of all the people listening. Um, the wild yeast is, it's everywhere. And for millennia, bread was made only with wild. It wasn't until World War II when Fleischmann started selling baker's yeast to the U.S. Army to make quick bread in the mess tents that anyone anywhere was even making bread with commercial baker's yeast. Yeah. What happened was after World War II, all the bread companies across all those bread baskets, as I would call them across the world, all the bread companies said, wait, with commercial baker's yeast, we can make bread in three hours instead of the 12 to 14 hours minimum that it takes to make wild yeasted sourdough. Well, why wouldn't I switch? My labor costs just got a lot less expensive. The control over the process is dramatically enhanced because when you're making bread for 12 to 14 hours, there's just multiple points along the way where you can lose that dough. And once the dough overproofs, you don't get it back. Then you have yeah. a much flatter, denser bread. So, I learned that the hard way last as week. As you were actually. telling me, yeah. <laughs> well, I made my own sourdough and I let that last rise go too long. And you're right, you can't get it That's back. That's it. So, so sourdough is harder to make and it's more expensive to make and it's more finicky. And you got to take care of that starter. You can't just add fresh yeast that you bought from your local supplier every day. You got to keep your own yeast and, and take care of it. So, yeah, and can we... Can we just pause for a second for sure. those who the word the term wild yeast like and and looking at the ingredient level wild yeast is not an ingredient yeah. it's actually created in the bread and the environment and how you process it it's not yeah, let me you let me say a little starter. bit about yeah that. share about that yeah yeah, yeah. so um, essentially wild yeast is a you know, an, a, a bacterial uh, substance that's in the air. And they, there are essentially little animals. And we captured them and we make everybody in the bakery sign a non-disclosure agreement and a trade secret agreement saying that they will not tell anybody the secret of how we captured our yeast or how we keep it going, nor will they ever take any dough out of the bakery. However, I'm willing to tell you, as long as no one on this podcast goes out and starts making their own sourdough bread to compete with us. So well, I can't I'm guarantee taking that, it as but given that everyone has promised me they won't do that. So, but okay. what we did was actually... We took wild conquered grapes that were growing next to the Neshoba Brook. This is 26 years ago. And we put those wild grapes on a breadboard in what was then the bakery that we were just starting to build. And after a while, several days, the grapes started to mold. And it turns out that wild yeast is very attracted to grape mold. So the oh. wild yeast in the area where we were building the bakery settled on the grape mold. And what we did was we scooped that up. We put it in a bowl with flour and warm water. We mixed it together and then we strained all the grapes out of it and we had captured wild yeast. And now to keep it alive, we take a little bit of the sourdough and a lot of people will be familiar with this. We took a little bit of the sourdough every day. That becomes the substance that's then used as the starter for the next day. 
We keep some sourdough starter in reserve. We have backups. Every day, the process is to take a little bit from yesterday's sourdough, and that's what starts it again every day. So again, to come back to the story of, of why sourdough bread is different, what got lost when everybody turned to commercial baker's yeast was all of the nutritional benefit of eating long fermented food, which is essentially what sourdough bread is. So if you go to a nutritionist and you say, you know, here's what I like to eat, what should I eliminate from my diet? One of the first things a nutritionist, most nutritionists will tell you is eliminate empty white carbs, white rice, white flour, white pasta, white bread, all that kind of stuff is not very healthy. Sugar, all those carbs are not very healthy. And if you say, but my friend, John Gates tells me that sourdough bread is good for me. Your nutritionist is going to say, oh, if it's real sourdough and it's long fermented, that's actually health food. Because what happens yeah. is the fermentation process breaks down the gluten. It breaks down something called phytic acid, which makes things hard to digest. It is actually has a lower glycemic index. Um, it's food map diet approved. Um, the actual, the core of the bread retains a probiotic quality from that sourdough starter because it stays cool enough in the center that it doesn't bake that probiotic quality out of the bread. And it, in a, in a sum, what it does is it makes it more flavorful. It brings out something called flavonoids, which give it flavor. So it's more flavorful. It's easier to digest and it's more nutritious. So we get people that write us all the time who say, we didn't solicit these emails, but people write and they say, you know, I read about your slow rise process and I am gluten sensitive. And because of what you're doing with your bread, I am able to eat bread again. Amazing. because, And I think a lot of our listeners and viewers are going to feel the same way because a lot of them just have wholesale cut bread out of their diet and unnecessarily so if they just That's seek right. out the right bread. We as consumers are very interested in nutrition. And if I'm going to eat bread, I want to eat the one that's going to be the best as far as nutrition quality and have some nutrient density to it as opposed to the processed bread. So I, for one, don't buy processed bread anymore. I'm, I've am i become a sourdough convert. And as I shared with you, John, uh, we're hopeful, hopefully when you get your distribution up, I'm looking forward to having your bread. But in the meantime, my son-in-law is an excellent sourdough baker and I'm trying to learn, but it's a process. You, It's a labor of love that you and Stu created to have this quality of bread available. And I'm sure that's why you have such loyal customers. You know, it's, it's true. And, and the one thing I would say, just to finish up that conversation about why sourdough bread is better for you, um, that I think is important for your listeners to hear is don't believe Pam and me. Google <laughs> sourdough bread nutritional benefits. And there's a wealth of information and you'll see a lot of articles. I won't even try to steer you to anyone in particular because I don't want to influence the outcome of that. But honestly, you'll find out all of you guys who are listening how healthy it is for you to eat real sourdough bread. And what's hard is, as Pam and I have been talking about, what's hard about sourdough bread is it's it's finicky and it's tricky. And by the way, if commercial baker's yeast gets in the bakery, it will, much like a uh, invasive species of plant, it'll take over the wild yeast and it'll basically okay. kill it. And we've had that happen in the bakery. Ah. So you have to really be careful to keep it separate. But at the end of the day, it's just it's just that much better for you. And yet, because it's finicky, most people don't make it. Most bread companies don't make real sourdough. And, you know, as we were talking about a minute ago, and as happened to you, you have to pay attention to the sourdough process. When you make quick bread, as I would call it, with baker's yeast, you can almost watch it rising in the bowl or in the bucket. 
And it comes up so quickly, you push it down once, you form it into a loaf and you throw it in the oven and you're done. And it's, you know, it's not easy, easy, but it's not hard to make bread it's that It's easier way. than when what you're, you're talking doing, about. <laughs> yeah, when you're doing sourdough and it's rising really slowly, you have to develop, A, you have to have attention to detail because you can't let it get away. But you also have to develop a feel. It's not about timing because environmental conditions, if it's hot and humid, it's going to rise faster. If it's cold and dry, it's going to rise slower. And so you have to develop a feel for when it's ready to be pushed down, ready to be formed into a loaf, ready to go in the oven. And if you miss it along that kind of 14 hour process from the time it was mixed to the time it goes in the oven, which is kind of a minimum for sourdough, like I said before, if you miss it, you're done. You're going to, you can still make bread, but it's not going to be very attractive. Well, and I have to say that we're, that's a sad state of affairs, John, when you're giving Google more credibility than you, <laughs> the professional <laughs> bread breaker, but to our, to our Google listeners. Google has plenty of trouble I, right now, I think. Yeah. Well, they're going to believe, they're going to believe what's out on Google. Not everything out on Google is true, but what you read about sourdough nutrition is probably true. Well, yeah. but there's also a history here. You know, I guess the industrial revolution and, you know, you just talked about a little bit of that, that, that brought us to that point and, and you're trying to preserve some of that and, yeah. you know, allowing people to really enjoy that. And I love so, about the gluten situation. Yeah. So I think two, a lot of two, need to hear two things about that, Pam, um, the industrial revolution, really, if you, if you think about what bread represents, there are so many phrases that we talk about bread as being important, you know, breaking bread is the way that we communicate commune with one another. Bread is the staff of life. This has this kind of resonance with all of us that bread is important. You know, man can't live on bread alone, you know, is sort of a way of saying, well, maybe actually bread is, it's, you know, you can live with just bread um, and bread is money. And there are all these phrases. And I think the reason that's happened, I used to ask myself this all the time. Why is there so much in the culture about bread? Why does bread have this symbolic and metaphorical quality? And I think it's because bread has tracked the development of civilization. The first bread that was made was in the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley when we first started as a human species, cultivating wheat and, you know, moving away from the hunter-gatherer societies and moving into a world where we could make food and live in closer quarters with each other because not everybody had to go out and hunt and gather. There were, there were artisans growing, growing food and making food to feed the rest of the community. And for the vast majority of our history since then, we've made this wonderful bread, but then the industrialization of food happened along with that movement after World War II to use commercial baker's yeast in bread, the industrialization of food happened. And we all know that story. Sugar, fat, and salt has made us all more unhealthy. We've, we've all been kind of sucked into this way of eating. Some people at this point are conscious of that. And I think it's not really a trend anymore. It's actually an evolution that we want to eat more healthy. And this bread, this way of making real sourdough, it's a return to the way we made it in the past, but it's also an evolution towards a more healthy way of thinking about what you put in your stomach. Absolutely. Well, you talked about, you know, some of the ingredients that go into food. Really, it's pretty simple. The ingredients, you know, sourcing of ingredients in the food industry, the whole supply chain 
problem, especially during the pandemic, was a real issue, but maybe not as much so for you, because yeah. how many ingredients do you have in your bread? Yeah, that's true. So we, you know, we, on the one hand, we make bread, a little unusual in the bread world. So we make bread, we make one bread we call Harvest, which has apricots, cranberries, figs, oh. candied ginger, and pecan. Mm -hmm. We make rosemary garlic bread that has fresh rosemary and fresh roasted garlic. We make an olive bread that has Kalamata on onions, sorry, Kalamata olives, olives. and caramelized onions. And we make raisin bread with cinnamon and honey and raisins rolled notes. So we, we make bread that has what food people call inclusions, yeah. but the backbone and the bread that we sell the most of is our white sourdough. And we use unbleached and unbromated white flour, which I can say a quick few words about. That's sure. minimally processed flour. However, it is white flour. The reason we like the white flour is that it, it rises. The whole wheat, all whole wheat versions of flour are very dense and you get very it's much less approachable bread. And the American consumer really appreciates the bread that has that little bit of air in it. It's a little lighter. Um, it's not fluffy by any means. This is this is hearty bread, but that's why we use that unbleached, unbromated white flour. And then it's salt, which we use sea salt. And then it's water, which we use twice filtered water from the town of Concord, runs through a carbon filter and then through a particulate filter or other way around through a particulate filter and then, then, a, filter, carbon. then a carbon filter. And than the yeast, which we captured and we grow yeah. ourselves. So it's water, salt, flour, and yeast. And the yeah. flour, again, it's a very historically stable commodity, despite what's happening in the Ukraine and the embargo by Russia of Ukrainian grain shipments. It's still a relatively stable commodity, even in this turbulent world. And salt is incredibly stable as a commodity. And water is probably the least expensive thing you can buy, at least luckily for us in the Northeast, it's plentiful. And it's not it's not really an issue for us to get good quality water to make bread. Amazing. Yeah, that simplifies things. But you shared a fun story with me where those weren't the only ingredients that you had in your bread and it caused some challenges for you. Yeah, with, um, you've got to remind granola. me. What... Granola. Oh, that you is a good Granola story. just as a gift for your cafe. I mean, for your cafe patrons. That's right. Not, to, not part of so, your- So we, as product. I was saying, we, we make a lot of bread and we don't make a lot of granola, but you know, our cafe has quite a loyal following and we, we do a healthy business out of that cafe. So we sell a fair amount of granola. And one day I went to my um, my head cook in the kitchen and I said, why is our granola so good? What is it about this granola that I am so in love with our granola and I'm so addicted to it? And she looked at me and she said, John, I put love in our granola. And I thought that was so great and such a cool thing to say. And what a wonderful way of thinking about what makes food good. Because as anybody who likes to cook knows, when you really throw your heart and soul into it, it often does come out better. Anyway, so we put on the back of the label for a granola, again, sold out of our cafe, we put love as the last ingredient. You know, several years ago, again, this is something you can Google and look up about us and you'll find lots of funny stories. The FDA came in and did a routine inspection of the facility. And as is true with all boards of health, whether it's at the local level, the state level or the federal level, they always find something that they want to complain about. And, and they did. There were a few little complaints, but nothing major. And we were then under an obligation to write back to the FDA and say, here's what we're doing. Here are the corrective actions is the lingo that we're going to take to resolve these few things that you pointed out that you want us to do better. So apparently my right-hand guy sent that letter off to the FDA, but they never received it. And we didn't know they hadn't received it until we got a warning letter. And warning letters under FDA regulations are made public. So there's a blogger 
at Law 360, who saw, he scours these FDA warning letters, and he saw the warning letter. And in the warning letter, one of the things that the FDA wrote was that love is not an actual ingredient, and yeah. you can't put love in the granola. So the too thing, serious. That's just too serious for the, the next record, thing I know, I I've got every TV <laughs> station in Boston. I've got the AP, the UPI, Bloomberg. I've got Robert Siegel from All Things Considered interviewing me on the evening news. Stephen Colbert had us on Barstool Sports, all the late night, other late night talk show hosts. Oh I was on radio programs in England, in Australia. Um, it went, we got letters from Europe, from Japan. The story went super viral. And yes. of course, we were very careful to say, look, the FDA is our partner. We're not trying to burn the FDA. This right. isn't about us seeking retribution. This was someone who picked this story up. And of course, underlying it was the story of an FDA inspection that we were supposed to have responded to. I think luckily in the way the press went, that kind of all got washed away, but yeah. it's quite a funny story. And last, there was a band out of Minneapolis called um, Porky's Groove Machine that did a song called Love in the Granola. And if you, oh if you look up Porky's Groove Machine and Love in the Granola, you're going to find a really, really great song and a really cool band singing about this episode for us. Well, I'm definitely going to have to look that up. And just, I appreciate you sharing just life in the bakery and, and in business and the, just the things that can happen. Uh, I'm sure you have other stories, but oh gosh, I appreciate yes. you sharing about you know, just sourdough bread and your process and really the story of a successful small business, you know, two friends from high school starting this business. Here you are 25 years later and expanding and investing and bringing in new ovens and just doing well. You know, it's the American spirit. We just love to celebrate the entrepreneurial spirit and um, share that. We have international listeners as well. And I hope that they've also learned a lot about sourdough bread and uh, your whole process and are inspired by your story. But is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we go, John? Well, sure. I'll say one last thing. So in the sure. spirit of entrepreneurialism, my mother, God bless her, loves to tell the story that when I was a kid, I always said I wanted to start a business. I'm sorry, mom, but that's not true. I never took economics in college. I studied to be a lawyer. I'm a member of the bar in Massachusetts. Um, it was never my dream to start a small business. And I really can't imagine starting another one. It's a ton of work. It never goes away. You're always on call. You know, if anything goes wrong at your business, that's on you. No one else is going to take responsibility for it. And it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. And if you have the instinct to do it, you should study and learn as much as you can about business. That was a mistake I made. And we had some bumps in the road early on because of that. And absolutely follow your passion. It's hard to be successful as an entrepreneur, but if you can find some modicum of success, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful way to live. It really is. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for that encouragement. And thanks for being with us today, John. So nice to talk to you, Pam. Yeah. And I want to say to our listeners, if you've enjoyed John and learning about sourdough and some of the nutritional benefits and entrepreneurship, small business in America, uh, please like and subscribe to our podcast at futurefoodcast.io. We would love to have you. Until next time, I'm Pam Miller. <laughs>